Turn if, with me, if you will, to Genesis 25. <clears throat> so we resume our study of the book of Genesis. Genesis 25, today we'll begin at uh, verse 19 and try to make it down through verse 26. <clears throat> Genesis 25. Through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord says to us in one place, My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. I think that may be one of the hardest things about the Christian life. Trying to figure out what God is doing. Why does he do this? What is he thinking? Well, that's what's going on in our text this morning. If you struggle with that, you'll probably feel right at home because that's what we're going to find Isaac and Rebekah struggling with. Let me read it, beginning with verse 19. <clears throat> this is the account of Abraham's son Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Paddan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife and she was, because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first, came out, the first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. And after this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So they named him, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. Let me suggest three truths that uh, the Lord has for us in this text this morning. The first is simply the recognition that God's ways may baffle us. God's ways may baffle us. This Friday afternoon, just two days ago, the Peruvian Air Force, apparently with the help of an American uh, radar tracking plane, shot down a civilian plane loaded with American missionaries. A mother and her little girl were killed. How can God let that happen? Isn't that exactly the opposite of what we would expect? Doesn't the Lord promise to take care of his servants? Doesn't the Lord promise that his children are secure? Those who would give their lives to go out and take the gospel to the ends of the earth, couldn't they expect that God would protect them? How can this happen? I don't have an easy answer to that. I know that God is in control. He says it everywhere in his word. But frankly, God's ways often baffle us. And that would be one current example. That frustration about God's ways was undoubtedly the experience of Isaac and Rebekah in our text. You see, God has gone to great lengths to guarantee that they would have a son. God had promised Abraham 
years and years before. That's Isaac's father. That Abraham would be the father of many nations. That presumes some heirs. And still God took his time giving Abraham any sons. And finally the promised son Isaac was born. Abraham was a hundred years old. So they're now way behind in God's program it would seem. But there's no question Isaac is the child of promise. He's the one through whom all of these promises would be fulfilled. And so when it came time for Abraham to make out his will, he bequeathed everything to Isaac. Isaac is the chosen heir. Isaac is the one through whom all God's blessings will come to the earth. It is in Isaac's descendants that the Lord will find his people. And so when Isaac reaches the age of 40, he finally has a wife. And he had every reason to expect that now's the time to begin to build his family. There'd be some heirs. After all, God had promised a multitude of heirs. Sometimes God's ways baffle us. For Isaac and Rebekah, after the storybook wedding of the servant of Abraham going to get Rebekah and her eagerness to come. And Isaac's joy in receiving her. There's no children. Five years down the road, there's no children. Ten years down the road, there's no children. Hey, Isaac wasn't that young when they started. The clock is ticking here. Fifteen years down the road, there's no children. Sixteen years, seventeen years, eighteen years, nineteen years. They've been married. Anybody been married twenty years with no children? Some of you have. What a bitter, what's God doing? God's ways baffle them. What about all the promises of God? What about God's covenant? They had trusted God. Had he forgotten that? I make a point of this because I know that some of you stand right there this morning. You have trusted God's promises. Maybe not in regard to having children, but in regard to, maybe in regard to your children. In regard to something else. You have trusted God's promises and you have waited patiently. And you are confident that you are expecting the right thing of the Lord. And nothing has happened. Nothing has happened. And in our agony we cry out, God, where are you? Lord, what have you done? Lord, are you not listening? Lord, have you forgotten? Well, this morning I encourage you, do not lose hope, dear brothers and sisters. God's ways are not our ways. And frankly, his ways baffle us. But do not let your heart grow cold and cynical. Instead, as you keep faith, there's just one thing to do. Which brings us to our second point. In your dismay, pray. In your dismay, pray. What do you do when God doesn't do what you expected? When you are quite certain that you are expecting what he has promised? 
Well, in our day, we have a lot of contingency plans. We have lots of things that we're willing to try. Certainly, if it was the case of no children, we have tons of options, all kinds of uh, fertility uh, treatments, and there are lots of ways we could try to have children. In fact, no matter what the problem, we have probably have some other solutions in mind, but verse 21 says simply, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. In your dismay, pray. This is certainly an example of praying according to God's will. The way we're commanded to pray. You know, we pray for all kinds of things. Lord, give me this. Lord, do this. Lord, bless me in this way or that way. The way God tells us to pray is to understand from his word what it is that he has declared to be his will. And to ask him to do those things. That's what Isaac is doing. Isaac knows that it is God's will for him to have an heir. God's covenant promise rests on that reality. He must have an heir if his descendants are going to inherit the covenant. He knows that God is the one who blessed his parents with his birth, even though they were past the childbearing years. He knows that God is the one who gives life. He knows that God kept faith with his father. And so Isaac, in his dismay, of not understanding why for 20 years God has not given him a child, he prayed. Now I suspect when it says Isaac prayed for his wife, that that is a classic understatement. Surely Isaac did not wait for 19 years before he started praying, and then one night said, you know, I ought to pray about this. Lord, help us to have a child, and bingo, Rebecca's pregnant. I doubt that's how this works. I suspect that for 20 long years, Isaac prayed before these twins were born. And with every year that passed, his prayers became more intense as his dismay grew, as he was more baffled at what God might be doing or not doing. Ever pray for anything for 20 years? Sure enough, in his own time, God answered, and Rebecca became pregnant. Take heart, God keeps his promises. Learn from Isaac's example. In your dismay, pray. Examine your heart to make sure you're praying for what God has said he intends to do, not just something that you would like him to serve you. But when his ways baffle you, Bring your frustration back to him and call upon the Lord. And so Rebecca is pregnant, but then again, that only provided another occasion for prayer. Of course, in those days, Rebecca, when she found out she was pregnant, didn't just run down for an ultrasound and find out that she had twins in there. She only, as her pregnancy progressed, experienced an unusual amount of kicking and jostling and, until it scared her, actually. And she says, why is this happening to me? What's going on here? This is not good. And so what did she do? In her dismay, she prayed. She went to inquire of the Lord. 
see, folks, that's what God's people do. When dismayed, we pray. The Bible's full of examples and exhortations to that end. For example, in Psalm 28, we read, To you I call, O Lord, my rock. Do not turn a deaf ear to me. For if you remain silent, I will be like those who have gone down to the pit. Hear my cry for mercy. As I call to you for help, as I lift up my hands toward your most holy place. In dismay, pray. Or Psalm 18, the cords of death entangled me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. What's the psalm writer saying? In my dismay, I pray. Or in the New Testament, Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything. We are experts on anxiety, aren't we? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. In your dismay, pray. Or as Peter writes so simply, casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. In your dismay, pray. I know you've already done that. But then again, how seriously have we done that? It's one thing to pray about something. It's another thing to persist in prayer for a long time, resting only on God's faithfulness to what he has promised. Well, Isaac prayed, and Rebecca became pregnant. And Rebecca prayed, and the Lord gave her an answer, an oracle from the Lord. But might I suggest that when Rebecca paid, prayed, she got more than she expected, which brings us to the third point. Rest in God's sovereign plan. Rest in God's sovereign plan. These days, Christianity is often reduced down to warm sentiments that make you feel good. You can find those in your local Christian bookstore. They're on plaques and pictures <clears throat> and mugs and t-shirts. You can find them in racks and racks of greeting cards for people who will write warm sentiments for you if you can't come up with them yourself. And if you have email, if you just put your email address out there, you will receive many every day. Warm stories, sweet little things, warm sentiments about God. We have quite, a, quite an appetite for warm sentiments. I wondered if that's what Rebecca was looking for. Lord, just give me some sign that everything's okay. Oh, to have one little assurance, one little word of assurance in the midst of this turmoil to just put my heart at ease that everything's fine. But that's often not how God works with us. God gave her more than she asked for. In answer to her prayer, what's happening to me? God spelled out something of his sovereign plan. 
Look at God's answer to her prayer. Surely an answer meant to encourage her, but probably an answer she could hardly understand. Look at verse 23. The Lord said to her, this is an answer to her prayer, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Now let's think about what God actually told her. First of all, he told her that she was going to have twins. She probably didn't know that, if you think about it. She probably didn't know she was having twins until God told her that there are two here. And sure enough, that's what happened. If you look down to verse uh, 24, when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first came out to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau, Harry. We call people Harry, too. I guess that's for a different reason, isn't it? They called him Esau. And after this, his brother came out <clears throat> with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob, or heel grabber, which probably was just a, uh, a pleasant little name for the unusual situation and the way he was born. And later, Esau, in his dislike of Jacob, interpreted it in chapter 27 and says, no wonder he's called heel grabber, the deceitful little snip, you know. He, uh, it, it came to take another meaning altogether. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebe Rebecca gave birth to them. God says, you're going to have twins. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. Jacob and Esau. Or Esau first and then Jacob, actually. <clears throat> But then God went beyond that. That would have been explanation enough. Rebecca, there's two in there. That's why it seems so unusual to you. <coughs> but then God went on and he said, there are two nations here. There are two nations are in your womb. Now what would you expect if you're having twins? You would expect, we're going to have two little brothers who love each other, who are who are." just joined together because they're twins and have that special bond of relationship in the family. They're going to build a strong family that's with a special bond for their whole life. And God says, that's not what's going to happen. These are going to be two mighty nations at odds with each other. And the struggle has already begun in the womb. But they're not to be equal nations. One will be stronger and will rule the other. God's telling you that there's a division going to take place. By the way, that's exactly what happened. They didn't just grow up and be happy brothers, and living together and farming together, and making a strong extended family. Oh no. Esau's descendants became the land of Edom. Jacob's descendants became the land of Israel. And there was no love lost between Edom and Israel for centuries and centuries and centuries. But sure enough, by the time of David, Israel ruled Edom. Oh, and folks, this is a foreshadowing of Christ, the ultimate descendant of Jacob. The foreshadowing of the fact that in Christ there comes a great division. 
Christ doesn't just come, first of all, to make the whole world a big happy family. Christ says, I came not to bring peace, but a sword. Christ's kingdom separates his people from the kingdoms of this world, and there is a struggle, and there is animosity, and there is hatred, because one is in and one is out. That division, that separation between God's people and the rest of the world is foreshadowed already in the womb with Jacob and Esau. Then there's a third thing. God told Rebekah that he had chosen the younger to rule over the older. Now this was a great reversal for the older sibling, the firstborn, was the new family head. He got a double portion of the inheritance. He was the new leader. He was the one who would take his father's place. But here God says, oh no. The lesser son. The younger son. Will inherit all my promises. He is the one I have chosen. And I have rejected the older who normally would be the heir of all the blessing. No wonder there would be a struggle. These are fighting words, aren't they? God has chosen the younger over the older. God has taken away the older's place, Isaac, Esau's place, and given it to Jacob. Now, there's no question that this is what God is saying, for in the New Testament, God spells it out for us. We have God's own commentary on this passage in Romans chapter 9. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 9, verse 10. Romans 9, 10. Here, the Lord graciously explains for us how we ought to understand this oracle that God gave to Rebekah. Romans chapter 9, verse 10. Let me read down through verse 16. Not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Donald, Donald Gray Barnhouse, uh, Jim Boyce's predecessor at uh, 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, said of this text, the text 
flatly states that the choice of God was not dependent on their birth or their character. The choice was in the heart of God and based entirely on his sovereign authority. He decided that Jacob was the child who was to carry the line of Messiah and be the heir to blessing. And in the same way, he determined that Esau was not to carry the line nor inherit the blessing. This was God's divine purpose. The works and characters of the individuals had nothing to do with the choice. Wow. This answer was supposed to be an encouragement to a frightened Rebecca? Or to us, for that matter? The truth is, there's no teaching in the whole Bible that stirs up such strife and dissension as this one. Teaching about God's sovereign election that God has chosen who he would give the blessing to. Certainly the opposite of warm, sentimental words. So what encouragement is this supposed to be to us? I suggest that it is encouragement to us and that here God makes it crystal clear that his plan is all of grace. Oh, the Bible is clear in lots of places. In fact, in, Genesis, in, in Joshua 24 that we read this morning, that we are called to make choices and God holds us accountable for the choices we make. We'll talk about that more. But clearly, that's, the Bible says that. But you see, if there's nothing behind that, if there's nothing behind those choices other than our best intention or our ability to discern what's good or our own meritorious efforts, if that's all that determines the success of God's plan to save the world, then we are hopeless. For who would make the right choice? No one is righteous enough. No one seeks God, he says. No one understands, he says. No one will make the right choice. We've all gone astray and continue to do so. But when God answers Rebecca and us with these words, he not only prepares us for the great division that Christ will bring into the world, but he gives us hope by pointing out to us that his plan is based on his sovereign grace, not on us. Pure grace. Ian Duguid, one of Uri's uh, Old Testament professors down at Westminster, puts it this way. God wants to make it clear right from the start that there is no favoritism with him. There are no privileged positions 
Being born of Abraham is not enough. Being born of Isaac and Rebekah is not enough. Being the oldest child is not enough. God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And he will harden whom he will harden. Our salvation is all of grace, not of merit. God is no respecter of persons. He chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chooses unfavored younger sons to show that it's all grace from start to finish. Dear folks, this gives us hope. For in our misery, in our brokenness, in our defilement, Jesus extends his invitation, Come unto me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and gentle of heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Now you see, if God's plan is not all grace, then that doesn't really apply to those who are the most helpless, for they would not, will not even know how to come. And the minute God's re- plan requires some merit or some status on our part, then it closes the door to those who have no merit and no status. Well, but Jesus' invitation is just the opposite. He bypasses those who think they have something to offer God. And instead, he seeks out sinners who know, I have no hope but grace. Those are the ones he saves. It was true back then. It's true today. God declared it to be, somewhat cryptically, but declared it to be way back in his oracle to Rebecca. This morning I call you to Jesus. Not you who think you have some merit to bring. Think you can pay your own way. Oh no. You who know your only hope is grace. Joseph Hart expressed the invitation of grace so well in this great hymn. Let me read you some of it. Come, you sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you. Full of pity, joined with power, he is able. He is able. He is willing. Doubt no more. Come, you weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall, If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous. Not the righteous. Sinners, Jesus came to call. Lo, the incarnate God ascended, pleads the merit of his blood. Venture on him. Venture wholly. Let no other trust intrude. None but Jesus. None but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. Come rest in God's sovereign grace. Why does God do what he does? Why does he allow things which are obviously opposed 
to what he has declared to be right. Why? 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 Well, we don't have nice, neat little answers for all of that. For we must admit that God's ways are often baffling to us. Ah, but God's ears are open to our cry. And so in our dismay, we will pray. And then, though God's ways are beyond our comprehension, we rest in his sovereign plan. For there we find grace, pure grace. Undeserved grace for sinners like us. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the sovereign grace that we read about in your word. Lord, when we first hear the thought that you would choose who you would save, We're tempted to get our back up and say that's not fair. Lord, as we think about it, we realize that if we only get what's fair, none of us would ever be saved. For none of us have any claim on you, Lord. None of us seek you enough, understand well enough, labor to earn righteousness faithfully enough. And so, Lord, we recognize that our only hope is that in grace you would save us even though we do not deserve it. And we turn our hearts to seek you. Lord, grant us the grace of repentance and faith. And especially we pray when we are baffled by what you're doing. Lord, those are such moments of truth when we either will draw near to you and call upon you and rest ourselves in your sovereign power, wisdom, or our hearts become cold and cynical and we run away. Oh God, grant us grace to come near and to rest ourselves in your plan that we cannot comprehend, but which you've revealed to us to be the truth. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.